0: Matthew chapter 5, uh, this morning as we continue to worship God uh, together. Today we're beginning a new uh, series through the Beatitudes, that, uh, a series that will take us through most of the summer, I assume. The Beatitudes are the opening discourse on Jesus' famous uh, Sermon on the Mount, and the uh, Just so you know where we're going, uh, we're going to take our time a little bit as we work through this. We're going to um, probably spend the next 10 or 11 weeks or so taking these Beatitudes one by one. This morning, though, I want to begin with an introduction. And actually, next week will also be an introduction and overview. I want to make sure that we're well grounded uh, in the context and the understanding of what Jesus is saying and proclaiming here Uh, before we move on and consider the Beatitudes one by one. And so that will be our purpose today. Introduction to the the Beatitudes, the Gospel of the Kingdom. Matthew chapter 5, we'll read them all, verses 1 through 11. Brethren, this is God's Word. Let's receive it as such. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when He sat down, His disciples came to Him Utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Amen. This is God's word. Bow with me again in prayer. Our Lord and our God, just as you opened your mouth to teach these crowds, on the mountain so long ago, we pray that you would open our hearts now. Open our hearts to receive and profit from this Word. Lord, we know that unless You give us ears to hear and eyes to see, we cannot understand. We will not understand. We know that the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, that they're foolishness to us by nature in our sin. We know that There's so many worldly cares and distractions, and and even Satan himself can snuff out and steal the word so that it does not profit our hearts. Lord, we ask then that you would have mercy upon us, Lord, that you would make this word profitable to us today, and that you would speak as your servants are listening. Oh, Lord, help us hear as we ought. We make this request in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, if you've ever read uh, C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, or maybe you've seen the movie, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, then you know that one of the most moving, the most enduring images um, in that story is when it is said that Aslan is on the move. Aslan is on the move, and we get this, this beautiful picture of of a long-awaited king returning to his kingdom, finally. And this ripple effect of his arrival is seen and it's it's felt all around. Things are beginning to change. There is hope that the sorrows and the brokenness of this world are, are beginning to be healed. The king has arrived and he is working. I think this is a fitting image as we come to Matthew chapter 5 here in the Sermon on the Mount. We just, in the context, we didn't just read, but if we were reading up to this point, in Matthew 4, verse 17, just a prior chapter, we're told that Jesus begins his earthly ministry after being tempted by Satan. And he began his ministry by preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then a few verses later, in verse 23, we read that Jesus went around the whole region, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction among the people. Teaching and preaching and healing. Signs that the king was on the move. Signs that the kingdom had arrived. This then is why just like Moses ascended Mount Sinai to receive God's law, Jesus also ascends a mountain to preach his very first sermon to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. In fact, even beyond just the Sermon on the Mount... Uh, The entire middle section of Matthew's gospel, the, the emphasis and thrust of Matthew's gospel, is almost exclusively devoted to Jesus preaching on the kingdom. Preaching the kingdom was the heart of his earthly ministry. And the Sermon on the Mount is the heart of that kingdom gospel. But as we recognize this, today I want to ask you what is the kingdom? What is the kingdom that Jesus proclaimed? I feel like so often we can talk about the kingdom a lot without actually ever really defining it. I mean, we hear a lot about kingdom living, don't we? We hear a lot about being children of the kingdom, having a kingdom mindset, doing kingdom work. What is the kingdom? What does it mean to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom? What is the inbreaking of the kingdom? What does it mean that Aslan is on the move, as it were? What does it look like? What does it lead to? Well, in Acts chapter 1, the apostles thought that the arrival of the kingdom meant that the nation of Israel would be restored to national and political power. Likewise, in our day, many speak of the kingdom as that which brings social or economic or political restoration. Others speak of the kingdom as the rise of a, of a Christian nation or a Christian society. Others speak of the kingdom as simply as the church. Others speak of the kingdom as that which is only in heaven. We're just waiting to go there. What then is the kingdom? Well, that's part of what Jesus answers for us here in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, we certainly don't get a full picture of the kingdom in in Matthew's gospel alone. Jesus still had to die and rise and inaugurate the new covenant and ascend to pour out the Holy Spirit. We need the rest of the New Testament to fill out our understanding of the kingdom. And, and we will always be wrong if we just devote our understanding of the kingdom just to the gospels alone. Nevertheless, we do see here very foundational elements to the kingdom. In a very real sense, Jesus Himself is the kingdom, because He's the King. And when His uh, uh, with His arrival in the incarnation, the kingdom began to inbreak into this world. So as the king, what he's doing in this sermon is declaring the policy of the kingdom, the lifestyle of the kingdom, and and maybe most specifically, the righteousness of the kingdom, of his kingdom. In other words, here we find a description of those who belong to the kingdom. We find the distinguishing characteristics of those who are citizens of the kingdom. We find the righteousness embodied by those who are part of the kingdom. And this is partly what it means that the kingdom is present. Now, as we think about this, though, and need to stop again here, give a pause. We know from the scriptures and from, well, just reality, that the kingdoms of this world are not yet the kingdom of our God. We know from the book of Revelation that will only happen in the end. We know even just a few verses later here in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus talks about um, laying up treasures in heaven as opposed to laying up treasures on earth. And we know that he tells us there to seek first the kingdom of God, which does not consist of earthly material things. And we know that we are to pray, thy kingdom come. We are to look and long for the full consummation of that kingdom. So while on one hand we can say the kingdom has arrived, that it's breaking into this world, there's still a sharp distinction between the earthly kingdom and the heavenly kingdom. We have to keep that in mind. They're not the same. Thus again, we're brought back to how this sermon declares the righteousness of the kingdom of heaven. What then are the distinguishing marks of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God? In a world where we are immersed in materialism, earthly possessions, not to mention secularism, worldliness, sin, wickedness, darkness, In a world where we're immersed in these things, what are the distinguishing marks of the citizens of the kingdom of God? If you believe yourself to be a part of the kingdom of God, what marks you out as distinct in contrast to the world? It's interesting, John Stott says here, there can be nothing more um, fearful or terrifying or condemnatory if somebody says of you they're just like everybody else you're just like everybody else because there are distinguishing marks of the children of the kingdom as opposed to being a citizen of this world and this is where the beatitudes come into play this is what the beatitudes help bring to the surface So as we think about this, I want to answer most specifically and most succinctly, what is the kingdom? To put it it most simply, the kingdom is the inbreaking of the new creation. The kingdom is new creation. And these beatitudes are the distinguishing marks of the new creation. They're marks of things that are not natural to fallen man. There are marks of things that are not earthly or materialistic. There are marks of things that are heavenly, the fruit of new creation at work. The kingdom is new creation. So to signal its arrival, Jesus came, healing the sick and the lame, and announced, which is essentially announcing that the curse, the sin, death, and decay, it is on its way out, it's passing away. And then, right after that, he ascends the mountain as his pulpit, he sits down as a king sitting on his throne before his subjects, and he begins to declare the characteristics, the lifestyle, the virtues, the righteousness that mark that kingdom, his kingdom, the kingdom of new creation. That's the kingdom. But I want you to note carefully, though. I mean, Do you notice that Jesus doesn't begin talking about his kingdom or talking about uh, the righteousness of his kingdom? That he doesn't begin with law. He doesn't begin with commandments. He doesn't begin with what we must do or that which we do do. He doesn't begin with threats. He doesn't begin with warnings. He doesn't begin with intimidation. He doesn't begin with pressure. The first word out of his mouth. Blessed. Blessed are those who embody the righteousness of this kingdom. It doesn't begin with what we do. It begins with who we are. You see, Jesus is intentionally invoking and, and retracing the steps When when God descended upon Mount Sinai to give the law. This is a very intentional word picture here. It's intentional to contrast the giving of the law with the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ, God himself. But remember though, when the law was given, God spoke with thunder and with lightning and it struck terror with the people. But here Jesus sits down. And speaks with an inviting voice. What a contrast. Think too, when the law was given, the people were warned, stay away. God said, if even an animal touches this mountain, it will be struck dead. But here the people are invited to draw near. Direct access to God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Also, when the law was given, it served as a ministry of death. It came with threatening. It came with that word. Cursed is the one who does not abide by all things in this book to do them. But Christ comes not with cursings, but with blessings. He came not to frighten us with the blinding holiness of God in the face of our sin. He came to allure us to God. To allure us to the son of righteousness who comes with healing in his wings. Just think about that fact. The very first word of our Lord's very first sermon is blessed. Doesn't that tell you all you need to know about the infinite love and compassion that our God has for you in Christ? Doesn't that tell you all you need to know about his ministry? That the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ? That God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him? Blessed! Now, brethren, this gets at the heart of the question what is the kingdom? And it gets us, helps us get to the context uh, that we need to properly understand the Beatitudes. Blessed. We've already kind of loosely defined the kingdom as the inbreaking of the new creation. And we've kind of connected that with how the Sermon on the Mount details the fruit and characteristics of that new creation kingdom. But I want us to think about how this specifically relates to the Beatitudes themselves. I mean, part of that's going to be our focus for the next few months. But today, I want us to think more specifically. A good way to kind of get us on the right track of to, to answering these questions is, is maybe to begin by thinking, and I've already hinted at it, but are the Beatitudes commandments? Are the Beatitudes exhortations for us to obey? Are the Beatitudes law and imperatives for us? And I come back to that question, even though I've kind of already answered it. I come back to that question because how often they're treated this way. I've often heard the Beatitudes preached as this is what we are to strive to be if we are to be saved. I've often heard them preached in, in many respects as the way of salvation. I've often heard them preach that that these are the standards of God's kingdom so um, the thrust here is a a call for us to pull ourselves together and follow them. I I want you to think there's nothing that can so quickly lead us to despair. Or hopelessness. Not to mention self-righteousness. To think about the fact of what these beatitudes declare can you make yourself meek are you to put on a perpetual face of mourning blessed are the pure in heart can you make your heart pure are you to seek out and invite persecution for righteousness sake I want you to see, brother, there's no doubt that our Lord does not shy away from giving commandments. The very Sermon on the Mount is full of commandments. But not here. These are blessings, these are royal pronouncements of favor upon the subjects of this kingdom. The language of a royal grant, a king's royal grant. The king's bestowal of favor and goodwill to his people with no strings attached. With no obligations on their part to earn them or to secure them. That's what blessedness means. Again, we're going to think about this more uh, next week, but for now, just note, blessedness is a state, a statement of approval. God approves of these. God delights in these. God rejoices in these. God rewards these. And the flip side of that is that those who are marked by these characteristics themselves possess a joy. Even happiness in some sense. And a fulfillment of God's favor. It's a great question to ask ourselves this morning. Do you long for the good life? Spiritually speaking. Do you long for what is true and lasting joy and fulfillment? Being the object of God's delight. You know there's no shortage of answers out in that world. They promise you all sorts of things. You want the good life? You need a good education and a good career. You need to find your soulmate. right? You need to pursue pursue what your heart loves. There's There's no shortage of answers out in the world of what is the good life and how you can obtain it. But will you listen to the words of the Lord? These beatitudes lay out for us the good life. They lay out for us what it is that God delights in. They they lay out for us what it is that provides us with the enjoyment of God's favor. And it's not anything like the world would say. It's not anything about what your own heart or your own nature would say either. So, yes... uh, While these Beatitudes, in some sense, they challenge us to examine ourselves to see if we embody them. Uh, they, They challenge us. They present ideals which we are to pursue as Christians and strive for. While that is true, first and foremost, though, God does not give these Beatitudes so that we would despair or fret or worry or try to pull ourselves together. And if you read them that way and you think, oh, I'm not like that, you're reading them the wrong way. You're reading them the wrong way. You've missed his point. He is announcing them as blessings. He is announcing them as the glorious vision of what he intends our lives to be. This then is what connects them to the kingdom. Again, what is the kingdom? It's new creation. What are the defining marks of this new creation? Here, but even more specifically, who is the active agent of the new creation? i I already answered you that question, who is the active agent of the new creation? The Holy Spirit. The presence and the work of the Holy Spirit. But you see, then it's no accident these Beatitudes so closely resemble what we read earlier from Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit. These virtues and these characteristics only appear in those who have been born again. They only appear in those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. They only appear in such because they are the fruit of His work, not your work. These beatitudes represent an inward righteousness. You can't do these things on your own. You can't produce these things in your own life. You, you can't. I mean, on the outside, you can have no other gods before me. Or not commit adultery or murder, right? Uh, on the outside, you can, you know may have sort, some sort of natural temperament or personality that lends itself to meekness and people may think you are meek. You may be able to temporarily fool people for a time into thinking that you're meek or that you're pure in heart, but ultimately you can't do that yourself. You can't make yourself pure. You can't make yourself meek. You can't make yourself poor in spirit. Yet when Aslan is on the move, as it were, The king and the kingdom draw near to your heart. These are the fruit of his presence. These are the marks of a genuine Christian. And Christ is giving them in one sense to say, look, though the world despises these things and despises you. And though in this life you may endure lots of pain and suffering and sorrow. These are those who enjoy the blessing and joy and fulfillment in favor of God. Well, this then leads us to one last thing I want to consider today as we approach the Beatitudes. I haven't given you a formal outline, but I hope that you've... Gotten At least by this point, the Beatitudes represent the inbreaking of the kingdom. They are announcements and blessings of God's favor, not commandments or threatenings. They are the fruit of the new creation at work in the fruit of the spirit. But also the one last thing I want you to see as well in six of the eight Beatitudes here. We must not overlook the fact that the blessing comes in the future. Not in the present. I want you to notice Jesus gives bookends to his Beatitudes. That helps us understand the main point. The first Beatitude and the last Beatitude both come with the same promise for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But the middle six Beatitudes, verses four through nine, every blessing is put in the future tense. For they shall be comforted. They shall inherit the earth. What then is our present possession? Or maybe you put it this way: where is the kingdom that we possess right now? It's in heaven. That means it's not on earth, it's not yet on earth. So why does the first and the last beatitude in with a promise of the present possession of the kingdom of heaven while the rest of the blessings remain future? It's because the kingdom awaits consummation in the future and not in this life. The meek will inherit the earth, but that is not a promise for this age. Meekness is not going to get you ahead in life. The, 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 the saints and the meek will inherit the earth, a material earthly world, but that awaits the last day. Brethren, Christ's kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. The citizens of Christ's kingdom are citizens of heaven. They are in this world, but they are not part of this world. And and that's part of Jesus' main point here. We need to get rid of notions that the kingdom is something earthly, something visible, something political, something social, something materialistic, something of this creation. Christ does not promise that in this life and on this earth, we will see the transformation of the world into the kingdom of God. And this is important because that's exactly the opposite of what Israel expected. It's the exact opposite of what the apostles expected, or the uh, disciples, I should say. And it's the exact opposite of what many Christians today expect as well. But that's why these Beatitudes are so penetrating. That's why they are so spiritual. That's why they are so foolish to those who are still in the flesh. You're telling me that the king has arrived. Right? He's finally on the move. He's finally taking a seat on his throne. He's finally proclaiming the righteousness and policy of his kingdom in a really messed up world, by the way. He's finally one who's speaking with the authority of God and not like the scribes, which is the comment at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. All these things are finally happening, and yet you're telling me that my life is going to be marked by mourning and by meekness and by trying to make peace and by persecution? Brethren, if you think that the kingdom is earthly and that Aslan on the move means that there's going to be great progress in culture and uh, society and political endeavors, then these Beatitudes are always going to be a bit confusing to you. It's going to be hard to be a meek peacemaker who's persecuted for righteousness sake if you think your commission is to take the world's institutions captive for Christ. It's hard to square the arrival and inbreaking of the kingdom, sweeping the globe, if Christians are still persecuted. But that's Jesus's point. Lift your eyes to things above. And, and brethren, if you know, you know. If you know and experience today what it's like to be poor in spirit. If you know what it feels like, what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And by that, just to give you a preview, that's probably tr- best translated as justice. Somebody hungering and thirsting for justice in this life because they've been mistreated. If you know, and, and you've been there, you know how confusing it can be to, to, to undergo these things and think, am I in the right kingdom? Is God really in control? Do I, do I really have His favor? If you know, you know. If you're there, then you understand that there are words, there are no words, so precious than to hear your Savior say, blessed are you. Blessed are you when everything goes wrong in this world. Blessed are you when people trample all over you. Blessed are you when nothing in your life works out as planned. Blessed are you when people don't like you and they slander you and they revile you and you lose your job and you lose your home and you lose your loved ones because because of their gossip and their slander and their hate for you because you're a Christian. Blessed are you. And you will receive a reward. There are no words so precious to suffering saints than these right here by our Savior. You know, an important part of our life is our own search for acceptance and approval. I mean, we, for example, i mean, don't we all want the approval of our parents? Don't we all want the acceptance of our friends, our employers, our co-workers, our professors? I mean, don't we long to hear our parents say, child, I'm proud of you? Look at the man or the woman you've become. Don't we, don't we love to hear our boss say, Oh, great job. Job well done. Man, you, you are a great employee. I'm so thankful you're here. I mean, Don't we love to hear friends and loved ones say, I love you. I value you. I am glad that you're in my life. Acceptance and approval is is one of the most precious joys in life. It gives us this, this sense of satisfaction and fulfillment. How much more so then? To enjoy the acceptance and approval of God. Shouldn't that mean more to us than anything else in life? Well, here Jesus is saying, in me... And through faith in me, the new creation has come. Far from transforming this outward world materialistically, it actually reaches the depths of the human heart. It's not flashy. It doesn't win the world's approval. It doesn't give you your best life now. It even goes against your natural inclinations of what is the good life, as well as your expectations of what the kingdom of God and the arrival of the king should bring. But what is low and despised in the eyes of man is greatly esteemed in the eyes of God. And this is a description of those who have their Savior's approval. Brethren, the Beatitudes paint a picture of the man who is to be envied. Of the righteousness that God is pleased with from the inside. Paint a picture of that, the one who truly enjoys the good life. Think of how counterintuitive counter to our nature it is to say that you're persecuted and you're slandered and you're reviled. And yet you possess the good life. Brethren, the Beatitudes are a picture of all this because the Beatitudes are a picture of the Lord Jesus Himself. Jesus Christ is a perfect embodiment of the Beatitudes. Jesus Christ is the preeminent blessed man. Jesus Christ is the personification of the kingdom and the new creation. And Jesus Christ traveled this road before us, leaving us an example to follow. Meekness and lowliness and persecution in this life, but he inherited it all in the life to come. And thus... Our entrance into the kingdom and our progressive growth into these kingdom characteristics and our inheritance into the kingdom of the last day only comes through Him. Brethren, truly, in the Sermon on the Mount, along the long awaited King has arrived. He's arrived in the God man Jesus Christ. And with these words, And the pouring out of His Spirit after His death and resurrection, it's like Aslan on the move. The kingdom of new creation is beginning to break into this world. And we know this because when Christ's Word is proclaimed and those who hear and repent and believe in Him, we know that the kingdom has drawn near. Faith in Christ means that the miracle of the new creation, the purification of the heart, has taken place. And following faith in Christ and the new birth, these Christ-like characteristics began to be embraced and enjoyed and embodied by God's people through the indwelling spirit. And that is how we know that the kingdom has arrived and Aslan is on the move by spiritual fruit, not earthly and materialistic and worldly. Brethren, Christ died to make you this kind of person. And this kind of person enjoys the favor and the immense blessing and fulfillment of God in this life and will inherit it all in the life to come. Well, what about you then? Have you heard the Savior's voice? Are you the recipient of God's divine blessing and favor? Are you being shaped by the pronouncement of these blessings, seeking these blessings, longing for these blessings? Or are you being shaped by the false blessings and promises of this world? That's the questions before us today and the weeks ahead. What kingdom are you a part of? What kingdom are you living for? What kingdom is shaping you? What king is shaping you? What kingdom are you looking for? What kingdom will you inherit? These are questions that the Savior puts before us and that will and are answered right here in his very first sermon. Brethren, I pray today that God would open our hearts, our eyes, our ears to see the true fulfillment and blessing what who it is that receives such in Christ? But ultimately, I pray that He would open our our, our hearts and eyes to see our Savior right here before us today as he is himself is embodied and proclaimed in the Beatitudes. Look to him. Amen. Let's pray.